Well, if you've been with us recently, we have been going through our series, Being Church, really looking at what it means to be a church member, what it means to be a part of the body of Christ as it relates specifically to our church and to our body here at First Pres. And so we want to continue that series this morning going even further with where we've than where we've already been. We've already talked about what it means to actually be the body of Christ and how as a body we are called into unity with the many gifts that we have and to be using those gifts to serve His church and serve our church in this church. And ultimately we are to be a praying people, which is what we covered last week, that we are to be a church that is praying continually, praying constantly, being in communion with God, and praying that He would lead us and guide us by the power of His Holy Spirit. Without prayer, there is not much that we can do. Without relationship with Jesus, there is nothing that we can do. And so we must be a praying people. We must give ourselves to be of prodigious prayer. And today we turn our eyes to the book of Ephesians, to this letter that Paul has written to the church there in Ephesus. And we're going to be in chapter 5, verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 4. And this is a pretty common passage that we've probably all heard at some point in our lives, but I want to approach it just slightly different than maybe how we've ever heard it before. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open with us and you can follow along. This is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. Good and gracious God is... I stand here and stand before you and stand before these many, Lord, that you would do a work within my own heart, God, and that as we hear this word preached this morning, Lord, that it would change and transform us and give us a new ideas to what it means to be church, what it looks like to be a part of this body that you have called us to be a part of. And Lord, that you would make very little of me, but you would make very much of yourself, and that 
through this teaching today that you would be worshipped and glorified. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, when I first think about family, I think of my own family. And when I first think about my own family, I begin to think about how dysfunctional they are. I begin to think about how crazy they can be, how wild we can be, how all the time that when we gather, it is, it is something to be unexpected. It's always going to be a treat and a surprise what's going to happen. And when I say dysfunction, I don't necessarily mean it in a negative way. I mean, maybe kind of, but not really. I really mean it to mean that, you know, we're all a little messed up somehow, right? I mean, that's part of the brokenness of this world. It's part of being broken in this body. That it's, that's part of what it means to live in this place where sin has invaded and infected is that families are going to be a little bit dysfunctional. Now, I say that, but I absolutely love my family. I love it when we get together, especially Thanksgiving. This is when I experience maybe the most dysfunction, but it's also one of the times that I wholeheartedly just, it's, it's just literally the best. I mean, just imagine for a second when an entire extended family comes together and there's 22 of you and you're spread across two tables and you're all sitting at these two tables and they're both crammed in like a 10 by 10 room. All 22 of you sitting at two tables crammed in a 10 by 10 room. That's, that's oftentimes what our family Thanksgivings have looked like when we've all been able to get together. Not only are we all trying to sit together in this one room across two tables, but we're also all trying to cook a meal in one single kitchen, making sure that all the food is ready at the same time so that nothing gets cold and you're limited because you only have one oven and all the oven is occupied by the 20 dishes that everybody's brought to the dinner. And yet, among all that time, there's talking, there's conversation, there's hugging, there's just an outpouring of love in this place. There's just a desire to be with one another, to get to know each other. Even as dishes are being flung across the table so that the next person can get something onto their plate. Among all the dysfunction, there is love in a matter that I just simply cannot describe. I see how my family truly, deeply cares for one another. How much they step up to assist one another when anyone is hurting. Throughout the years, I can't help but think about my aunts and my uncles and how they stood by my mom during one of the worst times of her life. How they were there for her. I can't help but think about my cousins, both blood-related and those that have married into the family, how they cared so much about for my grandparents in the last years of their life, and how they were over there constantly caring for them in ways that I simply couldn't because I lived too far away. I think about my aunt who, you know, is beyond supportive. I mean, she watches our live stream every single Sunday. And even throughout service, I'll get little texts about things that are going on in the service and how she's just, she just loves it. And she just encourages me so well. 
I really don't think that there's anything that any of them wouldn't do for one another. That there's not any aspect of our lives that they wouldn't step into and say, I'll be there. I'll care for you the best way that I know how. The very best way that I can. That's my family. In all of its dysfunction, I wouldn't trade a single thing. And so that's what I think about when I think about my family. But what do you think about when you think about your families? What's going on in your families? What are the things that you're experiencing? Is your story like mine? Do you have a dysfunctional family that, man, when you all get together, it is crazy. It is like throwing plates across the dinner table. But there's so much love with every toss and every food fling. Are you like me who wants to just talk about their family all the time? Just sing the praises of the parents that you have, the children that you raised. Or do you think something different when you think of family? Is family a touchy subject for you? Is when it comes up, is all that you experience pain, suffering? Would you rather change the subject first rather than talk about that? Do you recoil at the thought of having to describe your family to somebody else? Because the truth and reality is that there are moments and there are families that that is their reality. That family is a difficult subject, a difficult topic. It brings pain to their heart when they think about the things that their families have been through. About the separation that exists. You see, the truth is that families are complicated. They're full of all these dynamics going on. And the truth is that no two families look the same. Not, not all of them experience perfect good and not all of them experience perfect bad. It's somewhere in between. But on that continuum, there are some that are lean more toward, I had a great family. And others that lean toward, I didn't have the best. But when we start talking about families... We also have to remind ourselves that families happen for us also in the context of a church. In the context of a church. And so when we talk about church, we absolutely have to talk about family. And so it's my prayer today that wherever you find yourself on that continuum, wherever you find yourself thinking, maybe I had the best family ever, or maybe I had not such a great one, it's my prayer and hope that the gospel truth that Jesus wants to present to us today becomes a revelation that families are integral to the life of the church. Both families in the traditional sense, which is what I've been talking about, but also a wider understanding that we together are a family full of spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers and spiritual children, all becoming the beautiful image of who Christ made us to be. And so in our passage today, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 6, verse 4, there's a specific context in which this passage is happening. You see, it's very easy for us to read this letter and just jump into the fact that the very first line is, wives, submit to your husbands. 
We could sit there and start there. But I don't want to start there because, again, the passage today is, is more about reflecting that, that families are an integral part of the church. And so when Paul starts writing to the church in Ephesus about wives and about husbands and about children and about their responsibilities to one another, we actually have to first remember that Paul is writing a letter to a church. And so when we think about it from that context, we realize that Paul is writing to a church. And therefore, he wrote about families. Because for Paul, to talk about the church meant to talk about families. Because families were an integral part of the church. In fact, in all of Paul's letters that he wrote to churches, half of them mention families, mention familial relationships, mention marriages, and mention relationships that children have with their parents and the relationship of parents to their children. In other words, for Paul, the church is family-focused. And that's where we're going to be today, is we're going to talk about what it looks like to be family-focused, what it means to be a family-focused church. The church has responsibility to families, and families have a responsibility to the church. It's why Paul wrote so much about them, why he addressed them so many times. And it's not just that we need to address them, but that we make them a focus. That we come around families, that we support families, that we love them, that we grow them, and that we teach them. And so when Paul begins to talk about the family, in our passage today, he has four specific relationships that he talks about. He talks about wives to husbands, husbands to wives, Children to parents, and then parents to their children. And so I just want to take a short amount of time today, and we all know that when I say short amount of time, I'm talking about half of your time this morning, um, about what Paul is writing in this passage. And so let us take a moment and, and start in verse 22. When, when Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. You know, in today's world, when we hear that word submit, we've been trained to think of oppression. We've been trained to think that it means that that one is lording over the other and therefore one needs to submit themselves to that one person. But the reality of the word submit in the context of the entirety of the Bible is that submission is actually a loving thing. And that you actually submit to yourselves to one that is loving. 
You don't submit to one that is lording over. We've had this conversation before when we talked about what it looks like to be a servant of all is that the servants or the leaders in the time of this day, the Gentiles, lorded their leadership over one another, but Christ called us to be servants of all in our leadership. And it's the same truth and reality for families. That wives, when you submit to your husbands, is actually giving respect to who they are and the role and leadership qualities that God has given them in Christ Jesus. But there's also a role that men are supposed to play in that as husbands. It's not simply that wives should just submit to their husbands, but it's that husbands should be loving their wives, verse 25, as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Now, I'm not a husband. I don't fully understand the context of of marriage but I've seen a lot of really good ones. I've seen how some of my own spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers live out this reality. That husbands are to love their wives. That, that word love is agape. It's, it's a love that transcends. It's a godly love. It's a sacrificial love. I mean, even in this context, he says, as Christ gave himself up for the church. So husbands love your wives. Is your love to your wife a sacrificial one? Because if it's not, then your wife doesn't owe much submission to you. You see, the marriage relationship is a symbiotic one. As one submits, one loves. And as one loves, one submits. They go hand in hand. And that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. You know, there's a reality in the church today that, that men are not leaders. That we're not leading as we have been called to lead. Are we acting in the manner which Christ has called? That we would be washing our wives in the water of the Word? Are we leading our wives in Scripture and in prayer? Are we leading them closer to Christ in every step that we take with them? Are we allowing our wives to take control and step out? To be the household leader because we haven't played the role that we've been called to play. To be as Christ is to His church. And you see, that is the reality here is that Paul says, I am saying this because this is a picture of the church. And so it goes back to what I was saying. When Paul writes about this to the church, when he writes about families to the church, it's not just that it's important. It's that it's everything. Because in the context of families, we actually see how Christ loves his church. We actually see the fullness of what it is when Christ says that he loves his church. It is in the context of families that husbands love your wives. We begin to see the full picture of what God intends his church to be like. But we also in turn see what God intends his families to be like. 
And then we turn to chapter 6 in this letter to the Ephesians where Paul writes, And then children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Children have a role. Children are just as important to the church as any other part of the body. But oftentimes we relegate children to be less than, that they don't have a role. And yet, Paul specifically addresses them because they are integral to the body of Christ. They are just as much a part of this family as they are a part of their own families. And so when we see that Paul is writing to even the children to say, obey your parents. What he's also saying is, obey your Christ. Be brought up in a manner and in a way that recognizes who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so when you obey your parents, you are beginning to learn and walk in a way that teaches you what it means to obey Jesus. And in the same manner, they're supposed to honor their mother and their father. For it is the only commandment, the first commandment that has such a blessing attached to it. That you would live long in the land. But here's the thing that we often overlook. In verse 4, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now it says fathers, but we know that Scripture, particularly Proverbs, is right full of, of language that says that it is the responsibility of the mother and the father to be teaching their children. Proverbs ch uh, chapter 1 just explains so much about children not forsaking the teaching of your mothers. And so we see that that parents then have responsibility to their children to raise them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Discipline, that, that word has the same root as disciple. Why? Because to discipline your child means that you are making them a disciple. You are to make them a disciple as, as you have been made a disciple. You are to train them in the instructions of the Lord just as He has trained you in the instruction of His ways. Now for many of us, you know, we can look around and we don't have young children that we're raising anymore. But some of you have grandchildren. Grandchildren that you would have responsibility to to also do these things, to disciple them and train them in the instruction of the Lord. Show them what it is that God has done in your life. How you have been raised and discipled in a manner worthy of the calling of God. And so, as we walk through this passage, I hope you see just a, a, a little bit about what God's heart is for families, specifically. About marriages and children and all that He has called them to. But what is our responsibility as the church? What is our calling? How do we become Family-focused. 
What does it mean to be a family-focused church? Because it's just, it's one thing for us to sit here and say, well, we can look and see how God has called families. But it's another to say we're going to be a church that is family-focused, which means we live out what it means to be these families. And so here, I believe, is, is what Paul's exhortation to the church is after reading this passage. Here's what I believe that God is calling First Pres to be when we are to be a family-focused church. There are three primary things. The first is what it means to be a family-focused church is that we're a church that encourages families. After all, I gave testimony in the beginning about the dysfunction that can be families, how hard it can be to be in a family. And for any of you that have reared a family, you know that it's not easy. You know that it is a difficult task. You know that it's not all rainbows and sunshine. I mean, I was a child, and I was perfect, but my sister, she was such a handful for my parents, you know? But it's a difficult task to raise children. But in the context of, of, of our faith, God didn't say you're raising your children on your own. And so part of our role as to be family focused is to encourage them. And so we should be encouraging our families in our church, encouraging one another. And so what is this encouragement that I speak of? I think it's the encouragement that we find in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day draw near. Here's the reality is that I understand that raising a family is difficult. I haven't done it myself, but I can, I can take a little bit of grasp. I worked with students long enough. I worked with families long enough to know that raising a child in today's age is not an easy task. It's not simple. There are things constantly demanding your attention, whether it is school, whether it is sports, whether it is any sort of after-school activity, extracurriculars, all of these things are pulling at you. All these things are going to be pulling at our parents. All of these things are going to be pulling at our young families. All of these things are going to be pulling even at you as grandparents. They're going to be tugging at you because there are going to be so many things that are going to be distracting us from one thing, the church. Part of encouraging one another is encouraging each other and encouraging families to not give up on the church, to not neglect their place here, to not neglect showing up on Sundays, to be fed the Word of God, not neglecting time in small groups, not neglecting the many opportunities it is for them to plug into the body of Christ, for them to see what it is to be the body of Christ, for them to be a part of the body of Christ. You see, the more that we encourage families to participate in our body, the more we encourage them to worship with us, to pray with us, 
the more that those children actually see what it means to play out in this role, in this place, to be a part of the church. If we want children to be back in the church after they graduate high school, after they graduate college, they have to be able to see that the church is encouraging families first. They have to see that the church is family-focused in a manner that is getting their parents plugged in in a way that is growing their parents' faith. We must be encouraging families to be present with us all along the way. The second thing is that to be a family-focused church means that we equip families to do what it is they need to do. We need to provide every necessary resource for a family to flourish, to do the very things that we are encouraging them to do. That means that when we're encouraging to worship with us, we need to equip them in a manner that is letting it be easier for them to worship with us. An 11 a.m. service probably helps. Getting kids out of bed, not easy. I've been there. Not because I have kids. I've had young kids try to get them out. It's hard. It's hard to get kids up in the morning and get them out of the house, get them dressed, get them ready. We have to be able to equip them in every way possible. In fact, I love what Paul says just before this chapter in verse 4. He says, that the role of the gifts of the church, which we talked about at the beginning, the role of these gifts is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by the wind, by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We've been gifted in so many ways in this church. How are we using those giftings to equip all of our families? How are we using them to equip the youngest family to the oldest family that we have? How are we making sure that every family has everything that they need in order to parent well, in order to be a great grandparent, in order to be the very best that it is in every possible way to make sure that they are here? But here is one thing that I need to say that equipping is not. Because I think every church gets this wrong. Equipping is not programming. We cannot program to be the family. Here's what I mean by that. Is that programs of the church are not meant to replace the responsibility of the family. I can't tell you how many times as a youth pastor I heard from parents, I want you to disciple my child. I want you to be their spiritual authority and their spiritual leader. I want you to make sure that they have the fullness of discipleship that they require. That is the role of a parent, not the role of a pastor, not the role of a youth leader and not the role of a volunteer. It is the responsibility 
of a parent to disciple their child. We just read that in Ephesians. Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You disciple them. It is your role to disciple your children, not the church's. And so when we create programs, it is opportunity for us to connect with one another, to build fellowship with each other, to create outlets that family within the church body might thrive and exist and flourish. And that we might be able to better equip parents in order to do their jobs in discipling their children. But it's not to specifically be their primary discipler. I would say it's even disobedient to the gospel and call of God if we become a replacement to their family. And so as a church, we should not program ourselves to death, but equip families to fulfill the roles that they've been called to in Christ Jesus. Which leads me to my last one, which is going to sound contradictory to what I just said, but I don't think it is at all. That to be a family-focused church means that we engage as family. So where we aren't necessarily supposed to replace the responsibility of parents in discipling their children, we are and should fill in as family when necessary. It might not be the individual responsibility of the church as a whole to disciple but it might be your individual responsibility as a part of this body to step in where none have. What do I mean by this? I think Paul describes it well in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, he opens up by saying to Timothy, my true child in the faith. And then in 2 Timothy, he says this to Timothy, my beloved child, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith a faith that dwelt first with your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. You see, the reality is we don't have the full picture of Timothy. We don't really understand his entire family dynamic, but we do know Paul didn't address Timothy's father. We don't know if he's absent. We don't know if he's, if he's passed away. We don't know where he is in Timothy's life. But we do know that he had a grandmother and a mother who were faithful believers. And we do know that Paul stepped in to be his father. Paul might not have been a biological father, but he acted as a spiritual father to Timothy in a place where he didn't have one. Spiritual fathers and mothers have to exist within a family-focused church. We have to be willing to step up into that place where there not, might not be one to take that place. And even when there is one to take that place, we should try to be that family 
How are we loving and caring for those among us? How are we becoming what, we, what they need for them? How are we helping parent and care for children? How are we becoming children to those that need our care and support in their seasoned years? I know that is in our church DNA. I know because I have experienced it from you. I've experienced how much you guys love and care for me since I've come to Griffin. How much you've loved and cared for Corinne since coming to this church. Let's continue to show that love to one another. To be family to each other. To be spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. That everyone that enters our doors, every guest is a member of our household. That you would be with them and that they would be with you. I want to conclude with this as our call of the church. You know, I don't really know when the last time there was a baptism here. I was well before me. We haven't had one since I've been here. But there's one thing that happens in every baptism liturgy that I'm aware of. And I'm not really sure the liturgy that's been used here in the past, but I took this specifically from the Eco-Theology series on baptism, and they provided a liturgy. And in every one of those liturgies, I know that they have this section to the congregation. Will you, the assembled body of Christ, commit again to serve Christ your King above all, to disciple one another, and to grow these new followers of Jesus to the full stature of His maturity? so that together we may bear his image to the world? And do we together commit to the communion of saints, the breaking of bread together, the teaching of the apostles, and a common life? Do you hear the resonance of a family-focused church in that liturgy of baptism? To be family-focused is to be encouraging, to be equipping, and to be engaging. And when we do this as a church, I really do believe that our marriages will be stronger. That our children will be stronger. That our families will be stronger. And our church will be stronger. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, lead us, guide us, show us what it means to be family focused. Lord, that as we bring families into our fold, into our household, God, as they live and they grow, Lord, that we would meet them with the fullness of what it means to be family-focused. That we would pour into parents and to children. And Lord, we would pour into singles as well. They're just as much a part of this family that you have called us to be with one another. We love you and we thank you in your holy and precious name. Amen.